We probably don't give a, a lot of attention to shadows. But shadows are in our lives all the time. We just don't always see them. Shadows can take on a variety of, of, of places and take on a variety of, listen, a variety of emotions for us. Sometimes shadows can uh, bring fear as we contemplate someone lurking in the shadows. Sometimes shadows can be comfort and relief when we are out in the hot sun and when we find ourselves looking and finding a shadow to block a bit of the, of the heat. We, there are shadows all around our lives, but we don't probably give a ton of attention to them, but Scripture does. Scriptures talk often about shadows. For instance, in Psalm 11, the psalmist describes uh, shadows as, as a means of God's protection, a place of protection. He says, keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Isaiah speaks of, of shadows as, as a, a means of relief. Each one will be like a shelter from the wind, a refuge from the storm, like streams of water in the desert and the shadow of a great rock in a thirsty land. And then we, we remember the words of probably the most popular and famous of all the Psalms. Psalm 23 I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, a place of fear. But I think shadows can do something else too. I've been thinking a lot about shadows over the last few months as I was contemplating what, what we might talk about during the season of Lent. And it struck me that there is something about shadows when we think about the cross. I envision in my mind that hill where Jesus is hanging and the cross is there. And as the sun is is down on it, there is a shadow that is cast from the cross. It got me thinking about the various people and objects and places that, that the shadow of the cross would fall on. Not just physically, but metaphorically and figuratively as well. And as the different groups of people stand around the cross, one of those groups that the shadow of the cross falls on is the religious leaders. The, the religious leaders of Israel have been, have been set apart way back when God first called Israel out of Egypt and made them a nation and his people. He, he set apart the Levites to be the religious leaders. And their purpose was to connect people to God. They were to represent God to the people and the people to God. And they did that by teaching the law. They did that by, by performing the sacrifices. They did that by helping the people understand who God was and what God required of them. This was their task. Set apart to connect people to God very important people within the context of the Israelite community. But as you look through the scriptures and the history in the Old Testament, reading the, the, the historical books and then into the prophets, we find that more often than not, it seems that the religious leaders 
betray their calling. And instead of being people who are intent on connecting the the nation, the people to God, and God to the people, they are enamored with themselves. And their lives become about fame and power and wealth and status. And they betray the calling that God has set them apart for. We see it culminate in the ministry of Jesus when he comes to the earth and and Jesus appears. There are a lot of people who recognize him as someone from God and who follow him, but very few of the religious leaders. Their interactions with Jesus are antagonistic. Their goal is to trick Jesus, to confuse Jesus, to, to turn the people against Jesus because they feel threatened by Jesus. And it comes to to a head in the passion narrative of Jesus. As you come to those last hours of Jesus' life that you find in Matthew 27 and Mark 15, Luke 23, John 19, you find this interaction of the religious leaders with the events and who they are continues to rise to the surface. They pay Judas 30 pieces of silver to betray Jesus. Judas takes it willingly, and he does betray Jesus. And then he's filled with remorse. And he runs back to them and says, I've made a huge mistake. I shouldn't have done that. I don't want this money. And their response is, so what does that mean to us? So he throws the money in front of them and runs out, and they have to decide, what are we going to do with this money? It came from the treasury But in their own words, this is blood money. In their own words, we use this to commit the act of murder. We can't put it back in the treasury. That wouldn't be right. So they say, ah, we'll buy a field so that foreigners have a place to be buried. See, we're not such bad guys after all. When they stand before Pilate, and Pilate is trying to to release Jesus, and they won't have it. And he, Pilate asked them, you want me to crucify your king? And they respond with one of the most astounding statements in all of Scripture. These people whose very calling and task is to represent God say to Pilate, we have no king but Caesar. Wow. And then you find them standing around the cross in the passage we read this morning. And standing there looking up at this man they know is innocent. The man that they have contrived to put onto that cross, suffering as he is. Their response is to mock him. I suspect this has to be one of the most difficult temptations Jesus faces in his whole life. I mean, you know, when you fasted 40 days and you can turn a stone into bread, that would be pretty tempting. But when you're hanging there and you know what they're saying is true. And they're saying, if you're the son of God, come down and show us. Everything in me would want to say, okay, let me show you. 
What amazing resolve, strength, courage, commitment to the Father and the, and the, and the task and the plan to stay there. And they continue their mocking. And in the shadow of the cross, what we see is, is the very essence of who they are revealed. Their essence is exposed as, as people who are callous and hard-hearted. There's something about standing in the shadow of the cross that reveals who we really are. Something about that shadow falling down upon us, casting upon us, that causes us to take notice. You know those days when you're walking along the road in the bright sunshine and all of a sudden a cloud goes over the sun and, it, and you, you're in the shadow, it's, it grabs your attention. Or you're walking along a street into the sunlight and all of a sudden uh, the sun goes behind a building and you notice the huge difference. It grabs your attention. That's the kind of thing that I'm envisioning as the shadow is, is cast down from the cross upon them. And who they really are is exposed. Now, when we look at this scene, when we read this passage and we, we think about this story, it's not difficult for us to become angry at them and to be frustrated with them and to feel a passion toward them. But what if things were reversed? What if the person or the people who are being punished, who are, who are, who are suffering, are our enemies? What if there are people whose, whose agenda for life is the exact opposite of ours? What if there are people who, whose purpose in life is, is to destroy what we're trying to do? What if it's people who offend us and oppose us? What if it's people who have rejected us and hurt us? What if it's people who've done unspeakable things to us? Our natural human response is to say, yea. They're getting what they deserve. That's what they should, that's what should be happening to them. I'm glad. I'm happy. We might even, if not with our words and our spirit, mock them. And we, and our argument is, well, they're getting what they deserve. It's justice. Justice is certainly a part of the kingdom of God. We see that all throughout the scriptures. God is a just God. Consequences are real. And I'm not talking about eliminating the consequences. I'm not talking about eliminating justice. What I'm talking about is our hearts about it. I think the gospel calls us to be people who want justice, but grieve and mourn for what it means for people who receive justice. Here's the problem with, with our, so often our feelings about justice, and, and, and is that we can, when we have these feelings of, of hard-heartedness and, and callousness or apathy toward people, even our enemies or those who have hurt us who are, who are suffering, we're getting what they deserve. It's difficult for those emotions not to seep into the rest of us. It's difficult to live compartmentalized lives. 
It's hard for us as human beings to, to feel hard-hearted and, and, and callous toward these people and not struggle feeling hard-hearted and callous toward other people. The thing is, we say, well, it, you know, these are our enemies and, and, and they're getting what they deserve. It seems to me that that when we allow those kinds of emotions, that callousness, the hard-heartedness toward our enemies, it's interesting how our list of enemies seems to expand. So when we stand in the shadow of the cross and, and we, we sense the cross convicting us, the first thing we want to do is run, run from the shadow. When God's Spirit convicts us of an attitude, of a perspective that is not what He desires, the first thing we want to do is run from it. Run from the conviction. We've all done it. Because then we feel less pressure. We don't feel the conviction. We don't feel the guilt. We don't feel the shame. We just run away from it. And quite frankly, we can live reasonable lives running away from it. At least for a while. But the problem is, when we run from the shadow of the cross's conviction, we are also running from the shadow of the cross's grace. Because it's only in the shadow of the cross that we experience the grace of God in Christ. Either we accept all that the cross brings to us, or none of the cross brings to us. And the point of the cross, God's end game, is not conviction, it's forgiveness. God's point in convicting us is not just to make us feel bad, but it's to, it's to enlighten us about the sin in our hearts so that we can acknowledge it, repent, and find grace and healing and forgiveness. That is God's ultimate plan. And in that healing and forgiveness, we have joy and peace, and we have life abundant. We have freedom. We're no longer chained to our bitterness and our callousness and our hard-heartedness. We've been set free. We've been set free to love and to care. To be the people we were created to be. That's the point of, of the struggle of the cross. That's the point of the conviction of the cross. That's God's ultimate desire for every single one of us. We wrestle with that. You know, we, we try to decide, is it worth it? Is the conviction, is the, is the end worth the, the struggle? The great philosopher Soren Kierkegaard loved to tell parables. And in one of those parables, he tells of an, speaks of an auditorium full of people when it has two doors. One door says, lecture about heaven, and the other door says, heaven. And he says, when the room empties... Everybody chooses the door that says lecture about heaven. I think he might be a little bit cynical about us, but he makes a point. Often, we would rather talk about the cross than to actually engage it. We would rather talk about theology than to engage God. We would rather think about God and discuss God and read about God and write about God 
than to actually enter in to the adventure and experience with God. Because when you enter into the experience with God, we are going to come to a place where the shadow of the cross is going to fall on us and conviction is going to come and we have to figure out what we're going to do with that. And like Jonah, we run. Like Jonah, we don't want to see our enemies be forgiven. But that's the heart of God. It's his heart for you and for me and for everybody else. It's fascinating to me that as Jesus hangs on the cross, he doesn't say, Father, show them who we are. Give it to them with everything you've got. He says, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. Because that's the purpose of the cross. And the light and the shadow of the cross shining on those religious leaders was intended to make them see what they were doing. And God's opportunity for them to say, we were wrong, we repent, and to be forgiven. And they miss it. What God wants for us is what Ezekiel describes in chapter 11. When God says to the people, I want to take your hearts of stone and I want to turn them into hearts of flesh. What he's really saying is, I want to take your hard-hearted hearts, your minds, your spirits, and I want to make you fully human again. I want to make you what I created you to be. I want to set you free. I want to fill you with my spirit and give you life, abundant life and joy. I want to give you peace. I want to make you people who experience my love in the fullest capacity. That's what I want for you. But you've got to let me deal with these things that are blocking that from happening first. It seems to me that there's nothing more visible evidence, experience for us of this than this table. At the table we come and, and, and we acknowledge, we acknowledge the weight of our sin on Jesus. We acknowledge that our sin was what led him to the cross. Our sin. But we also find in this table, as we acknowledge and repent, we find forgiveness. We find hope. We find life. Because this table is not just about what God has done. It's about what God has promised in his eternal kingdom. When we eat the marriage supper of the Lamb and celebrate all that he has created us to be. As you think about and sense, envision the shadow of the cross falling on you. What do you hear it saying? 
What do you sense God saying to you? Father, we pray that that in this moment we will hear you. And we will seek you with all of our hearts. Father, we thank you for your grace to us. We thank you for cross of Christ. We pray, Father, that you will pour out the abundance of your blessing on the bread and the cup. That as we eat and drink, this will be food for our souls. And that in our repentance, we will experience your forgiveness, your grace, your life, through Jesus Christ. Amen.